previously on Little Bit Leave It. Well, get out your dilutin' juice, it's Little Bit Leave It. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk Love Island, UK, in the USA. My name is Ben, and today, if you couldn't have guessed, we are going to be talking about Scotland. That's right. We're going to talk about Inverness. We're going to talk about kilts. And we are going to mispronounce Jacobites about 25, 35 times, something like that. If you listen to the trip through the West Country, you heard Jacob Waller uh, uh, correct us on that front. So this is a compilation of a few different deep dives, all having to do with Scotland. And if you really love it, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash littlebitleaveit. And uh, thank you for listening and enjoy. So, today we're going to talk about Scottish kilts and tartans. Inspired by Bigsy and Jess's conversation about kilts and marriages, I thought we would talk a little bit about the history of the kilt and a little bit about the plaids and the styling of the kilt. Before I go into it, I just want to acknowledge that I got a lot of this material from albanach.org, A-L-B-A-N-A-C-H.org. Written by Reverend Mr. Matthew Newsom. He worked at the Scottish Tartans Museum in North Carolina for 14 years, making his way up to being curator. He's also trained to make kilts and designed tartans for individuals, families, and institutions. Consulted a couple other sources too, but I just wanted to give a shout out to Reverend Mr. Newsom, without whose work this deep dive would have been longer and harder. And if you like it longer and harder, that's your problem, not mine. So, the kilt comes from the Scottish Highlands. We're back on the Scottish Highlands. Around the 16th century, it was the traditional garment for men and boys to wear. It started as the, and I'm going to say it once in the Scottish. I looked up the pronunciation and then I am not going to use the Scottish pronunciation again. Capiche? Capiche. It originally started as the Moore, known as the belted plaid or the great kilt. That's not the direct translation, but that is what it is. It was a full length, almost a blanket, usually made of tartan, which is a wool cloth woven into a plaid. It was about five feet wide and 12 to 18 feet long. It was wrapped around and gathered at the waist by a belt, belted plaid. The bottom fell to the knee and the top could be draped over the shoulder or used as a hood. So basically it was kind of like a blanket that you just wrapped around your body and used a belt to tighten? That is literally what I just said. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. So it was actually made of two regulation pieces of cloth that were issued to the soldiers. Okay, I was going to say, what regulation was that? Okay, got it. The soldiers each got... Yeah, blankets. Blankets, and they would sew two of them together to make these. And these great kilts can be seen in Braveheart, even though it wouldn't be invented for another 300 years. Dude, seriously, fuck Mel Gibson. Fuck him. Yeah. If you wanted to see it, that's a good place where you may have already seen it. You can also go on the Google and just look up great kilt or belted plaid, but I'm telling you that... Don't give Mel Gibson your money. No. Even though they were the traditional garment, they're known for being worn by the strong, swift Highlands Army. And they were really useful for a lot of reasons. It allowed the soldiers to be comfortably and conveniently dressed for war. The tight wool weave is warm and waterproof. The pleats in the back served as armor. No arrows in your bum. 
There were many folds in it, so that could be used for storage. You could tuck your fruit or your... Yeah, some tater tots in there. Tater tots. It also served as camouflage as the many lines and stripes break up a silhouette like a tiger stripes. What? Are there tigers in Scotland? My dude. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to kick you out and do this by myself. Okay. And at night, it could be removed and used as a blanket. Or if you really needed to move fast, you could just whip it off and run. (laughs) That's okay. The regular folk had somber colors and the flashy colors were worn by the upper crust. In the late 17th century, in the early 18th century, it started morphing into the Beck. Not going to use that again either. The small kilt or the walking kilt, which more resembles the one that we see today. It was basically just the bottom half of the great kilt. Also, you save some time. You don't have to sew the blankets together now. That's exactly right. It's not so crazy that the small kilt developed because instead of ripping a big thing apart, you're just not putting two smaller things together. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the commonly accepted story about how this small kilt came to be. The invention of the small kilt goes back to about 1715. There was an iron maker named Thomas Rawlinson, and he was a Quaker from Lancashire. What, an English guy invented the small kilt? Yes. He hired Highlanders from... Inverness. To work at his iron furnaces. I wonder if any of them were related to Wallace. Probably. The great quilts were too unwieldy for smelting ore and manufacturing charcoal. He decided that he was going to design a smaller garment, and he was known for being clever and inventive. So he actually is credited for making not the first short kilt, but the first pre-pleated short kilt. In all of the reading I did, there is a lot about kilt design and manufacturing and what parts developed at which part of the history. And I'm not getting super into clothing design because I could do a whole deep dive just on the construction. So let's just give Rawlinson some credit for making the first pre-pleated kilt. He and his business partner, Ian McDonnell, who was the chief of the McDonald's of Glengarry. Glen Ross. There you go. They wore the small kilt themselves and it took off. Okay, so I was going to skip this, but Ben wants me to mention it. Obviously, many Scots were upset that the invention of the small kilt is credited to an Englishman. And they point to a portrait of Lord, I'm sure it's Duffus, but we're going to call him Lord Doofus. It's a portrait of him from 1700 that shows him maybe wearing a small kilt, but experts disagree. Some experts think that it could just be a great kilt doubled up. Gotta throw my boys in the Jacobites. A lot of the Scottish Highland clans were fighting with the Jacobites. They were fighting against the 1707 Union of Britain and Scotland, as well as for their own personal self-interest. They had their own little grudges to deal with. It led to an association of tartans with the Jacobite cause. I'm going to just leave it there. I just felt like I had to mention them. So the Dress Act of 1746 was a direct effort to try to quell these Highland clans after the Jacobite uprising of 1745. The Dress Act of 1746 banned the tartan. And the carrying of weapons to try to bring these warrior clans under the control of the government. It was repealed in 1782 or 1785. I've seen a couple different years, but by that time, the Scots had started dressing like everybody else and they were no longer very interested in wearing the kilt and many of the traditional weavers had died. Also interesting to note that before 1792, if you wanted to wear a kilt in the lowlands or Britain, you had to join the British army and be assigned to a Highlands regiment. Like the Black Watch, which sounds like a Game of Thrones thing. 
So the kilt might have been dead on its feet, except in 1822, King George IV visited Scotland and wore a kilt. He told the people of Scotland, where are your tartans? Let's all have a big Scottish tartan kilt party. Woohoo! But since many of the traditional weavers had died, new tartans were designed. And this is the origin of the clan tartans. It's only from the early 19th century. So a little bit of invented history there. Yeah, I had always assumed and I think been told that, oh yeah, all of those tartans that you see, all of those plaid patterns go back to Macbeth and all those guys from way, way back in the 1300s. Not like Robert Bruce had his own tartan. Robert Bruce would have been around during the early days of kilts, but did not have a tartan. Interesting. The other way that tartans kind of became clan patterns is that different kilt makers in different areas would make the patterns that were the most popular and the prominent members of society and the families would wear those kilts from that weaver. So eventually over time, that family and that weaver's pattern got tied together in the collective mind. Interesting. Right. So you kind of had those two different ways that the clan tartan was invented. The Royal Stuart is the best known, worn by the Highlands clans and Scottish royalty. It was first published in 1831, worn by numerous regiments of the Scottish army and by the general public as a British symbol, though technically Queen Elizabeth II has sole ownership. Man, that royal family is such a scam. Okay, so adjustments were made to the kilt over the 19th century. They used different amounts of cloth, different pleat patterns, etc., but by the end of the 19th century, the kilt resembled what we see today, made of approximately eight yards of cloth, knife pleated. The pattern and the pleats are made to set or stripe, which I will get into, with a lining, tapered hips, and some form of closure system. So there's a little history on the kilt. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the kilt as a clothing item. The Gordon Regiment, those were the British Army members in the Highlands, their kilts were pleated to stripe as opposed to being pleated to set. The set is the pattern. To pleat to stripe, and you should look this up because when you see pictures, it'll make a lot more sense, but I tried to do my best here. If you're listening on Patreon, we will throw some links to some images in the show notes. Cool, we will. To pleat to stripe is to have every pleat identical with a vertical tartan stripe centered on each pleat. This way, the back looks different from the front. It would have the big plaid set in the front. You would see the whole thing. And in the back, you would just see a bunch of small pleats, each with a vertical line running down it. This is the way that the military kilts were made. And it was said that this made them a more striking and uniform look. It was also more cost effective as you could make more pleats per meter of fabric. To pleat to set is to continue the pattern through the pleats so the front and the back look the same. And it's the most popular way to wear them for civilians. Most tartans are two to six colors. The set is about six to eight and a half inches before it repeats again. So the design is measured in thread count to keep it consistent, but it's the color proportions that make the pattern, not the thread count. So your set might have 250 threads, but it's really how much red versus how much blue versus how much green is in it, not how many threads are in it. Because if you make a tartan out of silk, it's going to be different than if you make it out of wool, how many threads you need. 
Tartans are almost always symmetrical with the set repeating in the same sequence, both vertically and horizontally. And then the colors mix into a composite where they cross. And actually it's really cool. Early weavers use pattern sticks to lay out each thread and check for consistency. And there was this little story that I didn't write down from the mid 1700s. A woman brought her pattern stick to a weaver and then brought him to court because she accused him of not following her pattern. And the court ruled in favor of her and he was punished. So let's talk about colors. Until 1855, vegetable dye was used, and it's really remarkable how flexible it was. They could really make any color. They were not limited at all by the fact that they were using vegetable dye. But, you know, in the mid-1800s, as everything industrialized, chemical dyes were developed. The first chemical dye was developed in 1856, and it was called Perkins Purple. But early patterns focused on black, blue, red, and green with dark and light colors really counterbalanced. The reds ranged from pink to scarlet, you know, really, really light to really, really dark. The red dye was expensive, so any red was prized, but the greens were usually olive and the blues were usually navy. And then as the chemical dyes became more popular, they added more colors into the palette, even though they could have already made other colors. So most tartan patterns come in three shades, ancient, modern, and weathered. Which one is the oldest? Well, the ancient one, right? It is not. Oh. I'll tell you why. The modern, also known as ordinary, is the oldest. Oh, well, if you had called it the ordinary, maybe I would have guessed that was the first one because ordinary kind of implies original, right? Well, modern is the oldest. The colors are derived from that vegetable dye and they're usually pretty dark. Unfortunately, when they're produced chemically, they don't usually have the same subtlety. So the old, also known as ancient or vegetable colors were developed after World War II and they were mid to light shades meant to look old like stonewashed jeans. Okay. The weathered shades were meant to look like they had been buried in a bog for hundreds of years so that the colors faded to earth tones. And let me guess, these get progressively more expensive the crappier they look? I bet. There's also the hunting tartan, and that's a darker earth-toned plaid for clans who have a bright tartan that would be unsuitable for hunting. And the same tartan pattern will differ based on the mill. And so while I'm talking about all these different patterns and colors and shades, the basic premise is if you change a full color, like from red to blue, you're changing the tartan pattern, but you can change that red from brick to scarlet to orange and it'll stay the same tartan. And finally, for some funsies and more information, you can go to clanclan.com slash tartan designer and you can design your own tartan. Oh, so you know what I'm doing. Yeah, and you can also read some of the stuff that I put in here. I have to also give that website a thank you for some very informative stuff. Yeah, I'm going to go design the little bit Leave It Tartan. You should. So I hope that was informative. Not quite as heavy as some of the other ones. Definitely not quite as long. But uh, yeah. I think it's time for a little culture shock. Just got one. And I only mention it because it means the exact opposite of what I thought it meant. Okay. Mike says that he and Jess have bear in common. Sounds like it should mean nothing in common. Yes. But it actually means the opposite, you're saying? Yes, it means the opposite. They have everything in common. They have a lot. They have a lot in common. Did you see where bear comes from? Is that slang or is it? Bear is slang for a lot. Bear like bear legs, bear head, bear chest. B-A-R-E. Yes. Would not have made that. Do you know the origin? I did not find the origin. Okay. If you know the origin, email us, podcast at gmail.com or reach out to us via social media. 
on that note, I think it is time for Is it time to move out of mom's basement? Indude.com is the number one website for chill jobs, like working at a weed dispensary or a video game store. If they might ask you to take a drug test, cut your hair, or remove your piercings, you won't find them on Indude.com, man. We only list cool jobs. Awesome! Current listings include mini golf attendant, bowling alley cashier, and arcade manager. Sweet! Apply now for summer lifeguard positions, and if you act quick, you might snag a job at one of the country's last remaining video rental stores. The only catch is you'll have to move to Montana. No way! So the next time someone tells you to get a job, you can be all like, I'm in, dude. Indude.com. Jobs you can hang with. So today, we are going to make up for the terrible goodbye that Wallace gets in this episode. This season has two whole Scottish cast members, and we have not talked about Scotland yet at all. And so with half of this season's Scottish cast now leaving the show, we thought it was only right, especially given that we have devoted two separate deep dives to Wales. We certainly don't want our Scottish listeners to feel left out. We did start to touch on some Scottish history when we mentioned the very last Jacobite uprising that was centered in Newcastle on our last deep dive. And in an amazing effort to maintain continuity in our podcast, or just a coincidence, you decide, we're going to turn to the location of the very first Jacobite uprising, which occurred in 1689, Inverness, Scotland, the home of one Wallace Wilson. Never in my life did I think I'd be so entertained by the Jacobites. The Jacobites are very entertaining. They sound like a good snack. Next episode will be sponsored by Jacobites. So Wallace lives in Inverness. It is the 12th or 13th largest city in Scotland, roughly. And it does not even have 50,000 people. So for reference, Inverness is smaller than Trenton, New Jersey, White Plains, New York, and Stamford, Connecticut. Tri-State! Yes, shout out to the Tri-State area. Yet this little city has produced an amazing amount of history, and with apologies to our listeners in Trenton, White Plains, and Stamford, it is actually much more interesting than any of those places. First, Inverness is very close to the ancestral home of the historical Macbeth. Shakespeare put Macbeth's castle in Inverness, but it was actually a little bit to the east. In the High Middle Ages, Inverness was basically the capital of Scotland, and that's around the time Macbeth was king, and the most powerful clans all lived in the Inverness area. Coronations took place south at Scone, which is not even in the Highlands region. Inverness is, by the way, the largest city in the Highlands, and if you're a Scotch drinker, you might be familiar with the names of the regions of Scotland. Highlands, Scotch, that's the kind of Scotch that I like, Macallan, not as peaty. Anyway, after the Norman conquest of England, which is like 1066, roughly, and the gradual sublimation through war and marriage of the older Anglo-Saxons and Celtic kingdoms that created the unified England and eventually the unified British Isles, Gaelic culture in Inverness waned in influence among the upper classes. 
So Malcolm III killed Macbeth and supposedly built Castle Inverness. So this would have been in the 11th century. He married Anglo-Saxon royalty and his kids, though, they were raised in England because in wars they would capture each other's kids and raise each other's kids, the kings and queens and stuff like that. Very weird. Well, if you don't like yours and your neighbor's got a better one, all's fair in love and war, right? When it comes to kids, it's kind of both. I guess that's true. These kids were raised in England in the Norman royal courts, and the Normans were kind of French. Is that the historical, like, description? Normans, kind of French. Yeah, I guess they are French, really. Yeah. Like, today we would think of them as English because it was like a thousand years ago. I mean, us as Americans, right? I consider myself American. Three of my grandparents were not born in the United States. So it's a little different perspective. So for me, the Normans are English because 1066 is a long time ago. But back then they were French. We. We. Malcolm's kids ruled Scotland for like 60 years because he had a lot of kids. And Gaelic culture began to really become subsumed into larger British culture. But that process took a long time, basically 650 years to really permeate throughout all of Scotland. The further north you were in Scotland, the more Gaelic it was, and Inverness is pretty far north. In fact, by the late 19th century, there were still places near Inverness where people didn't even speak English. But in Inverness, most people were probably bilingual at that point. But London, though, they did not like people being bilingual. So wait, London as in like the... The Crown, the Parliament, they did not like the fact that there were a bunch of people under their rule who were still preserving their old culture. Yeah, they tended to do that, didn't they? Is, yeah. Isn't this about when they stamped out Welsh too? Yeah, around that time, yeah. So they prevented Gaelic from being taught in schools, and by the mid-20th century, very few Scottish people spoke Gaelic anymore. About 5% of people in Inverness speak Gaelic today, but... They're like those people who speak Cornish. And by the way, see our season six, episode four, Deep Dive, for more on Cornwall and that Cornish movement. These are Scots who are actually reviving the Gaelic language. <laughs> hipsters. They're so, hipsters. You know that they're hipsters. Or maybe they're nerds. And the overlap on there is pretty big. So why is Inverness one of the centers for the revival of Gaelic culture, you ask? Why is Inverness one of the centers for the revival of Gaelic culture? Well, it's not all that surprising when you know that it's the home of one of the most prestigious solo bagpiping competitions known as the Northern Meeting. How important is bagpiping to Inverness? Well, the coat that bagpipers wear in bad weather is called the Inverness Cape. And you've actually probably seen an Inverness Cape, though you probably haven't worn one, I'm guessing. The most famous wearer of this coat is Sherlock Holmes, the fictional detective. The Inverness cape is basically an overcoat with no sleeves, but with a cape attached to it. And the cape falls over your arms instead of sleeves. I think I should get one of these. Yeah, let's just go get some Inverness capes. And it works really well, the Inverness cape, if you're wearing a kilt. Because kilts don't have pockets, and it's easier to get into your sporin if you don't have any sleeves on. Allegedly. Yeah, it is. You gotta roll up your sleeves if you're gonna get in my sporin. Do you know what a sporin is? Yeah, I do. What is it? It's a fanny pack. Yeah, it is. But it's a fanny pack. Oh, yeah. So apologies to our English listeners. We know there are some of you out there. 
fanny pack is not a dirty term in the United States. Well, unless you're uh, sitting here playing wink, wink, nudge, nudge, so is your mother. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, isn't it? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Bob's your uncle? (laughs) I don't know. How's your mother? I don't know. So a sporin is a small satchel that's like a large pocket or a small purse, and you tie it around your waist, you attach it to a belt, you stick it right in front of your groin. Let's just call it a sporin and leave it at that. Of course, bagpipes and kilts and all that are Gaelic, and the Northern Meeting is one of the many Highland Games events in Scotland and other countries with large Scottish communities. When Scotland regained its independence from the English back in 1306 under the leadership of Robert Bruce, so this is when they got independent from those Norman kings, it was the Lowlands and not the Highlands that became the seat of power in Scotland because Clan Bruce was not a Highlands clan. But those Highlands clans up in Inverness, they continued to be kind of independent for another hundred years. And finally, King James I of Scotland rounded up a bunch of clan leaders and arrested them and had some of them killed. And of course, that put an end to all the violence and hostilities. Or actually, no, it didn't. If you've seen Game of Thrones, you know how this works. The cycle continues for another 300 years. Fast forward, the Scots continued to fight among themselves, which brings us to the first Jacobite uprising in 1689. I promised you Jacobites, and Jacobites you shall have. We covered the last Jacobite uprising on our last episode, but to refresh your memory, the Jacobites were loyal to King James II of England, James VII of Scotland, and the Catholic Stuarts, and they were against the new King William III of Orange. And this was part of a larger English civil war where Jacobites were also fighting the crown in Ireland. Inverness was besieged by one Jacobite army and then rescued somehow by another branch of the Jacobite army who forced Inverness to declare loyalty to the Stuarts. The Jacobites used the castle and the barracks as a fort in the later uprising in 1715. And then three miles east of Inverness is where the final battle between the Jacobites and the crown actually took place in 1746. They really hung on there, huh? They really were not letting it go. No. There was like the grandson or something of the last yeah. last one who was still fighting wars. They do not let that stuff go, which makes sense when you think about how much power is really at stake. True, true. And how if you've got a guy in there, then you're safe from whatever nonsense is going to arise. So there is, by the way, some noble in Bavaria who today would be the Jacobite heir to the English throne. Do you think he knows? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He knows. But they just gave up. Yeah. No, it's hundreds of years ago. They're not looking to do that at this point. I don't think they're looking to make that challenge. And if you head up to Inverness for a visit... I'd suggest going either in August when the Tartan Heart Music Festival takes place. The Tartan Heart? Is that after the rural juror? Or going in September for the aforementioned Northern Meeting, especially if you're a bagpipe fan. Sounds like a mob thing. Hey, and also, be sure to tell them Wallace sent you. That does it for us. You can find us on social media. You can find me on Twitter at L-B-L-I podcast. I'm at L-B-L-I Peng, but you're much more likely to find me on Facebook because I am old. You can also find us on Instagram. I'm trying. And you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. 
please do that. We want to read your emails on the podcast. So until next time, from Staten Island to Love Island, I slept on the couch for four nights and I didn't even do anything wrong. I slept on the couch for four nights and I didn't even do anything wrong. I slept on the couch for four nights and I didn't even do anything wrong. I slept on the couch for four nights. I didn't even do anything wrong.